0: Pollinators, whether bees, butterflies, wasps, flies, beetles, or other small critters, are vitally important to our food supply, to agriculture, and to our economy. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Much of the food we eat every day relies on pollinators, That includes our fruits, most vegetables, legumes, nuts, and even your morning cup of coffee. My guest in this program is Constance Quigley, a master naturalist who's an expert on pollinators and on the marvelous things they do. We'll find out what happens in the process of pollination, how plants have evolved to attract certain pollinators, and how you can attract pollinators to your green spaces. I'm here today with uh, Constance Quigley, who's a master naturalist, and we're talking about pollinators. I wanted to start out by asking you exactly what critters are we talking about when we're talking about pollinators? It seems like there's a pretty big group of them.
1: Yes, there are um, many, many insects and birds and bats, flies, um, even the wind and human beings are pollinators. So pollinators are many, many categories. Um, it just depends on what sort of plant is being
0: pollinated. So they, they are specific to plants?
1: Some are, yes. Some plants require a specific pollinator or they won't get pollinated at all. And wasps also. Uh-huh. And even mosquitoes um, can pollinate. So essentially any any creature that can take pollen from one plant and deposit it on another, or even in the same plant, is a pollinator.
0: And what is it they exactly do? Now, you explain that they're moving pollen around, but what does that do for the plant?
1: Yes, um, well, the plant's reproductive system, um, of course, it's, it varies a lot between plants, but there is essentially an ovary and there is an anther inside a flower, and the anther contains pollen, and the ovary is usually deep inside the flower itself. So most plants have that completely separated, and they require pollinators to bring pollen from another flower, usually on another plant, and deposit that pollen on the stamen um, that then allows the pollen to move down into the ovary of the flower. So depending on the type of flower, if it's a deep flower, like a trumpet vine blossom, it might be better pollinated by a hummingbird or a hummingbird moth. One of the moths that have a really long tongue that they can stick down into the flower. Um, If it's like a color wheel, an Indian blanket flower, it's just a matter of whoever can land on it. So it can be a wasp or a bee. a fly, a beetle, anything that can land on it and collect a little bit of pollen on it can then go to another plant and deposit that pollen.
0: Why should we care about pollinators? Why are they important?
1: Well, they're very important because plants are very important. And so in order for us to have fruits and vegetables and any kind of plant-based food, grains, anything that requires pollination that we have to have pollinators for that. So, uh, pretty much one of the most important things on the planet, really, are pollinators.
0: How many of the plants that we eat are, uh, do you know what percentage of them are pollinated or or need to be pollinated? Oh,
1: oh, probably nearly 100% would require pollen of some sort. Um, Even root-based plants like carrots, you know, they still produce flowers, which in order to reproduce, need to be pollinated. So... There's, there are very few plants that would not require anything like that. If they, some plants can pollinate themselves. Uh, So I, there are some that just require some movement, like a tomato plant. You can get, you can actually just shake a tomato plant and pollen will come out of the anther and deposit itself into its ovary. So there are some plants like that, that can be pollinated by the wind, like corn is another one. So, but they must pretty much any plant require some sort of interaction with some kind of moving object in order to be pollinated.
0: Now, I understand that plants have uh, various tactics and strategies that they've evolved over the years in order to attract pollinators. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, it's um, very, very interesting. Um, how these plants have evolved in conjunction with their pollinators. So some plants are very specific and others are more broad-based, but they all have um, different characteristics. So they may attract by color. um, They may attract by fragrance. Um, Some of them are just the shape of the flower. So uh, night pollinators like moths and bats are attracted to white flowers, and they might not even have a fragrance. They might be very fragrant, but the pollinator is probably just attracted to the white shining color in the nighttime with the moonlight on it. Um, Some flowers are red, and that's more attractive to hummingbirds. Some flowers are Yellow and that's very attractive to honeybees and wasps, so it just depends on how how it's evolved, really.
0: And and you mentioned earlier that they've uh, plants have sort of evolved with the with their pollinators. Yes, what did you mean by that?
1: Um, well, uh, there have been a lot of studies in that area that um, have. You know, you can demonstrate that certain pollinators are attracted to certain plants that have grown in that same area for, you know, millions of years or thousands of years. And the essence of the, the design of the flower is designed basically to attract the pollinator and allow the pollinator to access the nectar and the pollen so that it can then be transported to another like flower
0: that's pretty amazing there's
1: bats that only or i'm sorry there's agave plants that only attract certain bats and the bats are basically the only pollinator around that can access the flowers and pollinate them and likewise there are lots of insects that are just attracted to a certain type of plant so there's um there's just a lot of interaction and um i guess synergy between the way insects have evolved and their plants have evolved.
0: You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Constance Quigley, who is a master naturalist, and we're talking about pollinators. So are certain pollinators, for example, bees, more important than other pollinators? And Um, if so, why? I wouldn't
1: classify them as more important. But uh, depending on the crop and depending upon the importance of the crop to humans, they may be considered more important. Um, there are you know, European honeybees, which are used to pollinate almond crops in California. And there are people who make enough money off of that that they transport their bees out to California and back to Texas and Florida every year because they can make enough money pollinating almonds. Um, Likewise, there are crops um, in eastern Texas and the south that are, I guess they rely upon um, different kinds of bees, not necessarily honey bees, but some sort of mason bees that are used to pollinate those flowers, those crops. So it just kind of depends on, I mean, if the, if, you know, if you term it as important, is it important to the bees? (laughs) Is it important to the flowers? Is it important to humans?
0: You mentioned mason bees. So Mm -hmm. there are many different species of bees, uh, native bees, uh, solitary bees, bumblebees. Um, Are they all equally busy pollinating or some more than others?
1: uh, They, they all do participate in pollinating processes. So, um, Solitary bees and like maybe leaf cutter bees, they um, they often collect their pollen and then they also they cut little pieces out of leaves of certain plants and they roll their larva up in that, surround it with pollen, make it into a little burrito basically and they dig into a hole into the ground and they deposit it and they'll do that multiple times up to maybe 24 inches deep sometimes if they can, probably not in our soil, but in some places where they can dig that deep. Um, And they'll just keep depositing larva and wrapping it in leaves and depositing pollen. And and then in the spring, the larva has developed and formed a completed bee and they will just emerge from the ground. Um, It's just fascinating to watch them but they require yeah, pollen and they, like in, in, you know, in the act of doing their during doing what they do, they pollinate plants because they they not only go and cut leaf pieces off, but they also gather the pollen and put that in with their young.
0: Do bees feed on uh, nectar and pollen? What, do they they get different things from these two sources?
1: Yes, they typically they're attracted to a plant for the nectar because bees, require nectar to live so bees and butterflies and moths and hummingbirds and bats and all of the pollinators are typically going into the flower for nectar and the nectar is a carbohydrate and it's very sweet sweeter than let's say pepsi or coke it's super sweet and so it gives them a lot of energy in a quick way and the bees feed on that and they take it back and then the bees in their colony feed on it and um, solitary bees and butterflies feed on it Um, and in the process they also collect pollen because it just kind of sticks to their legs. Um, And then for for example for honeybees they also take the pollen back to their colony and they use it to make bee bread with combining it with nectar and they feed it to their young. So the larvae require pollen because it contains protein, and amino acids that are necessary for the young to develop. So between the nectar and the pollen, it's pretty much a complete food for most of the pollinators.
0: You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Constance Quigley, a master naturalist who knows a lot about pollinators. And we were just talking about bees. Now, we've heard about colony collapse disorder, where the worker bees die off or disappear. Um, What do we know now about that phenomenon? Um,
1: well, the cause of it appears to be due to a Varroa mite, which is a type of mite that in that um, attaches itself to honeybees. And it can attach itself to other bees too, but mostly it's known to be um, a parasite of honeybees. And it carries viral um, infecta- infectants, I guess, and um, it can also um, carry other diseases. So when bees gather on a similar, on a flower together, they can spread these mites around. And a mite can come off of one bee and go on to another bee and infect that one. And then it takes that infection back to its colony. Um, so Varroa mites are known to be an underlying cause of colony collapse because um, the mites can get, so numerous that they basically, um, kill off a lot of the bees and they bring a bunch of disease in and the bees get, uh, deformed wings or some other, um, infection that causes them to not be able to fly anymore. And so eventually the colony just kind of fades away and they can no longer support themselves. Um, and that's the main theory behind colony collapse, but, um, it can also be caused just by pesticides or some sort of damaging influence that takes a whole colony out. So I mean, typically it's some event that's caused by humans or some other um, insect infection that kills the colony.
0: And is this something that's still occurring? It does. And certain, type, certain areas
1: of the country are... Um, more impacted by that. Um, In Texas, we have some interesting developments because we have some beekeepers who have raised bees that are considered to be hygienic. And so they'll clean themselves of the mites. And once they remove mites from each other, and then the mites are no longer able to embed themselves in the young and, you know, continue to grow and, and be a real problem for a colony. So what we've, Um, discovered in beekeepers um, around Texas in particular that these kinds of bees are the best ones that you can raise and so a lot of people have been trying to just introduce these hygienic bees into their colonies into their um, beehives so that they don't have to worry so much about the mites being a problem and it seems to work pretty well. And I think that they've been kind of spreading these around the country, but it's mostly Texas that I'm aware of right now. Um, and then there's also treatments that you can do. So you can treat your beehives for Varroa. Um, there's different types of treatment. It's usually some sort of um, a fog basically that you introduce into the colony that kills the Varroa mites without killing the bees. But it's not organic so to speak. And so it can also harm the bees. And so I think that's why a lot of beekeepers prefer to pursue um, the breeding method, basically, like breeding bees that don't need that sort of treatment.
0: Are there other pollinators that are also in distress uh, for any particular reasons? Or, or is it just bees that were, were in trouble um, or maybe still are?
1: No, I mean as as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know monarch butterflies are always you know in the news for being in Mm -hmm. decline and um, other types of butterflies as well but monarchs are really well known because they're migrators and we uh, you know we look forward to them migrating through Texas and um, they are in danger mostly because their habitats are being destroyed and they're um, they're Migration pathways are being fragmented. So the the way they tend to migrate is just follow a certain pathway and developers are starting to destroy certain portions of that. So they can't kind of find their way the, the way they used to. Um, and, you know, people are are working on trying to create pathways for them. You know, you plant uh, fields of milkweed and try to get the monarchs to come there and feed and then move on to their final destination. So they migrate from Mexico all the way to the north every year. I guess other pollinators are similarly in danger just because their habitats are being destroyed and fragmented and they just don't have access to the plants that they used to have access to. So, in you know, we have in Texas, we have a lot of windmills. There are huge, you know, in, installations of windmills, and people don't really realize the damage they do. They can do damage to birds, and people get concerned about that, but they actually kill millions of bats every year because mm-hmm. the windmills cause the bats to be confused their radar doesn't quite understand what's going on with this spinning thing, and so they'll fly into it and end up dying, um, mm-hmm. which means that the bats that pollinate agave plants and the bats that pollinate lots of other trees and shrub species are no longer available. Um, so that's, you know, that's a it's considered a de- decline. It's a declining pollinator, right. um, and there are ways to handle that, but, you know, a lot of people just don't really pay attention to it. Um, And then, you know, just basic habitat fragmentation is a major cause of most insect and bird problems, not being able to find food and water the way they used to.
0: You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm talking with Constance Quigley, who is a master naturalist, and we're talking about pollinators. Um, uh, You were just talking about uh, bats. Is are there other, uh, or or rather, the the main reason for a lot of declines in pollinators is habitat destruction? Is that because of uh, construction of homes and businesses and places like that, or is it something else? Is it mainly construction that destroys habitat?
1: I I think for the most part it is. It's construction and um, the removal of a lot of agricultural land that, that used to be um, useful for pollinators. Um, so they, a lot of people convert agricultural land into construction projects and that doesn't really do anything for the pollinators. Um, another aspect of it is light, that um, a lot of pollinators don't respond very well to all the bright lights at night. They don't Um, they get confused by them like moths and and bats and Hmm. other nighttime creatures that might come out and try to pollinate things and they're just attracted to lights and they'll die. Um, So we have the Dark Sky Initiative and um, different people who are trying to um, implement methods of having nighttime lights for humans but keeping them pointed downwards so that they don't affect birds and they don't affect the pollinators that need
0: to have the darkness to find their way. We can start talking about what can people do to help the situation. Uh, And one thing, as I understand it, is to have different plant species, uh, if you have a garden or green space, to have a diversity of plants. And why, why would that be important?
1: Yes, Um, it's very important to have a diversity of plants um, because you need to support multiple pollinators if possible. Um, If you just have one type of flower, you're not likely to get a variety of of different pollinators. So you might just attract a few different types of butterflies and you wouldn't get um, all the other ones that might also support that habitat. So the more variety you can provide, the more likely you're going to have a large amount of insects and birds and different types of support mechanisms, I guess, for all of those creatures. The other th- thing to consider is the timing of the year for all of the different blooms. So it's important if you're really trying to support pollinators to support them throughout the season. So you want things that will bloom in the spring, you want things that bloom in the summer, you want things that bloom in the fall and the winter even, so that any pollinators that come around during the, throughout the whole year Will have something to eat, something that they can provide, you know, food and water for them.
0: I understand. That it's also important to provide plants that they would uh, lay their eggs on, and and the larvae would grow on. Correct.
1: Yes, absolutely. So you're not looking to just have flowers for yourself. You're looking also to have host plants, and a lot of um, a lot of caterpillars and um, a larvae, of Beetles and other insects live on shrubs or small trees, even large trees like hackberry trees and oak trees are a great um, larval insect source for lots of different butterflies, moths, beetles, and everything. I mean, pretty sure you know that, but <laughs> things falling out of your trees all the time and going, ooh, what is that creepy crawly? But um, it's, it's part of life, you know, it's part of what supports the, bee, the birds and the bees and the the moths and everything, they all interact, so it's just important to have all of that, and if you can have small small plants like flowers and really pretty, pretty little flowers all in a bed, that's great, and then if you can have some shrubs and some trees and all of these things bloom at different times of the year, then you basically have a habitat, and that's what you're trying to get going.
0: So if someone wanted to develop their green space into a pollinator-friendly garden, um, can you sort of describe a process that they might go through? Well, it
1: depends on what they're starting with. So if you're starting off with bare ground, the most important thing is to cover that bare ground. Um, Any gardener will tell you that bare ground is the worst thing you can have. So anything at all, mulch, um, small plants, ground cover, anything at all that covers that will at least start a habitat. Um, beyond that, um, just starting to plant native plants, native flowers, um, encouraging the things that already grow.
0: And then, of course, a lot of people will have a vast expanse of lawn, which is pretty much a dead space as far as pollinators. Um, what what do you suggest in place of lawns?
1: I I like to recommend ground covers that are native. So for people who have a lawn that has a regular water, so if you had a lawn that you had an irrigation system and you want to continue using that, I would recommend using um, straggler daisy, which is horse herb, or some other low-growing native cover that could spread and Produce little flowers and support some wildlife. Um, Frog fruit is another one. They're just really low-growing ground covers that will just grow in Texas. They don't need a lot of support, but if you give them water, they can really fill out a space and look really pretty, just like surprisingly pretty, like a St. Augustine lawn, but it's supporting a nice habitat instead. Um, Another thing that you can do is um, scatter wildflower seeds. Um, Texas is known for having lots and lots of wildflowers growing everywhere along the roads and the highways. And that's not being tended to really. That's just somebody out there threw out a bunch of seeds and it grew. So you can do that in your own yard.
0: Support your local pollinators. After all, they do so much for us. Please tell people you know about this podcast, and thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan, signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.